I'm Andy Crouch, inviting you to download and listen to the new Beer Edge podcast, a source for news, information, and insight regarding the brewing industry and the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. The show, co-hosted by John Hall and I, talks with key players on the front lines of the beer business to give you insights and advice on how to navigate these uncharted waters. The Beer Edge podcast is available on all major platforms, or you can visit us at beeredge.com slash podcasts. Thanks for your support. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint, and I'm John Hall. And today, my guest is Kim Sturdivant. He is the brewer credited as the creator of the Brewed IPA, who is joining me on the line from California. Hey, Kim, how you doing? I'm doing very good. How are you? I'm hanging in. Uh, I'm going to give you a more proper introduction in just a moment. But first, I'm happy to tell everybody that this episode is produced by Beer Edge. Check out BeerEdge.com for articles, podcasts, and to subscribe to the newsletter newsletter written by myself and Andy Crouch. And also be sure to follow Beer Edge on social media, on all of the various social medias, at The Beer Edge. So my guest today is a longtime brewer, a wonderful advocate for beer, and a trailblazer of styles. And many of you listening might know him from his days at Social Kitchen and Brewery in San Francisco, where just a few years ago he started experimenting with some enzymes and hoppy ales and gave birth to the Brute IPA. It became an instant success. And when it first came out, it seemed everybody wanted to talk about it. Personally, I was walking through the Craft Brewers Conference, which is a, an annual gathering for uh, for brewers, and I was there as media, and Pete Slosberg, the, the man behind Pete's Wicked, saw me from the other side of the room, came, came you know, walking over quickly. I won't say running, but he came walking over quickly and said, have you had the Brute IPA yet? Have you seen what Kim is doing with this enzyme? And I hadn't, but since Pete was so excited about it, I immediately had to look into it. I called Kim. I wrote some, some, some articles uh, about it. And and, uh, and that's how I was first introduced to, to you and your beers, Kim. And, and I, I want to talk about Brute IPA um, with you at length. But before you even got to that point, there was a journey that you took uh, to, to get there. What was your introduction uh, to a career in brewing? And where has it taken you over the years? Um, well, I graduated uh, from San Francisco State University um, I guess it would have been spring semester of 2004. What is the mascot at that school? What's that? What's the mascot? You know, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't really. Uh, I, I, fine. Yeah, I really don't know. Look um, at you they, with all they, the school pride. Okay, so you graduated from. They had from a baseball Sam- team. I okay. know that. That's about it. So like, have had a football like the team. fighting bridges or something, or, you know. Yeah. Yeah, the fighting bridges. Yeah, the I fog. Like that. Yeah. That's. Uh... <laughs> Um, anyway yeah yeah uh um so sorry I, that I just stopped the conversation dead you were on a you were <laughs> on like so a really funny, good though. role and then i just just immediately threw up the speed bump so thanks no i think it's funny um yeah so i, I graduated i had a degree in broadcasting i was getting a few internships here and there and just continuing to work my little cafe job um and playing a lot of frisbee golf and that that phase of my life lasted a few years actually probably like an extra year and a half or two years of just working in a cafe instead of doing something with my degree um and eventually i was playing frisbee golf and uh bumped into arnie johnson who i'd played with a number of times and um 
his buddy was uh, talking to him about how I had just started homebrewing and Arnie is the, the brewmaster at Marin Brewing Company. Yeah, long time. Uh, which has been around since. And, yeah. Yeah. So they've been around since 1989. So at that point, he had been with them for probably 13 years, 14 years, something like that. And just like a legend in the industry. And, you know, this is uh, late 2006. So, um, I mean, at this time in in history, you could just walk into a brewery and be like, hey, I, I want a job here. Can I clean kegs and scrub floors and offload your bottling line? And they would say yes. Um, <laughs> nowadays, it's a little different. Yeah. <laughs> nowadays, These days, they make like, you just sign a liability waiver first, and then they send you to the bottling yeah, line. Yeah, and then you but, do yeah. it for free for like a few months, and then they decide if they like you and you're battling with other people or something like that. Um, but yeah, I really, it was just kind of looking for a new direction and a career path in life and, um, was literally doing all those things, scrubbing the floor, offloading the bottling line, um, cleaning kegs, filling kegs. And, uh, I really liked the type of work it was that I was using my body, um, that I was physically doing something at the end of the day, there'd be a big pile of bottles or kegs or whatever, or a, an empty tank or a clean tank. It was just very like tangible and very rewarding. Um, and huh. I was making more money than I was at a cafe. I wasn't getting paid great, but, um, you know, for me at the time, I thought it was pretty good. And, uh, yeah, I, from there, I just kind of worked my way up over the course of five and a half years to be the assistant brewer there. And it's generally, a like a small four man operation is how Marin worked. Um, it was like a production brew pub. We did around 2,500 barrels a year. Um, probably about half of it or more was sold just right over the bar. So just awesome business model, classic brew pub, big outdoor space. And, um, I actually let Arnie know early 2012 that I was going to start looking for something else because I was just ready to move on from, I was doing a lot of graveyard shifts there at the time. And, um, you know, it was time to make my own beer instead of filtering and brewing someone else's recipes. And so, um, probably within a few weeks, the job at social came up and Arnie, uh, kind of clued me into that through another mutual friend. And I applied and got the gig there. And, um, I was there for seven, seven years, I think exactly. Um, and the owners there, they just really needed somebody to kind of take the reins and do whatever they felt like, um, and do whatever the, the brewer felt like the owners didn't know too much about what the industry was doing or, you know, what was a good decision? What was a bad decision? What kind of beers we should have on tap? So um, it was it was a bit of, you know, a lack of support in that I didn't have anybody to help me do anything. I had to figure it all out myself, including like paying taxes and making sure all our vendors were paid and Yikes. things some brewers have to do, but not most. Yeah. Um, but I also got the freedom to do whatever I wanted. So um, really grew the program up there. Uh, the last year I was there, uh, I had had an assistant, I think for about three years at that point, and we were just cranking along. We did, I think, a thousand barrels with just the two of us on a very manual system, um, including the cake cleaner was manual and uh, all the ingredients going up to the third level and then coming all the way back down to the bottom floor when they were done. And um, we we did really good there. So I wonder. Yeah. Just, yeah. Oh, that's, you know, that's. And then I left <laughs> after seven years, which we were talking about. It just kind of was like, yeah, this is, this one's working. Um, it's, it's just time to go and, and off to the next adventure. Um, mostly just because there was only four fermenters and I was looking around and seeing what other people were doing. And 
looked like they were having a lot more fun than I was. So with just having yeah, just being limited by the four. I, I, I'm curious with, with, with Marin and also Social Kitchen though, because so many breweries that open up today uh, were not of that brew pub model. Uh, were not where, you know, food was also being served. And I, I I'm I'm curious if you know, and these days, like you know, there's there's food trucks and everything, but it's still it's it's a brewing business, not a you know a beer and food business. Mm-hmm. Do Do you think having a proximity to a kitchen informed you as a brewer, or inspired you as a brewer, or you know, opened up different pathways that had you gone into just a straight up production tap room model, it might have been different for you. Uh, not really um i feel like if anything it kind of restricts you um in that you kind of want to keep things a little more family friendly i don't know if that's the right term but maybe like a little more generic and uh catering to people that are out just to get like a bite to eat but then you happen to have beer there um i don't know i mean that was kind of the deal at, at social kitchen it always seemed like it was a like a restaurant with a little brewery tucked in the corner um, in terms of like the way the, the, the space was laid out and just the, the business itself. Um, <clears throat> but I, I don't think a kitchen should have too much of an impact on a beer program. I mean, in theory, they could work together, Yeah. but in practice, you know, when everyone's like, Oh, we'll have beer pairing dinners and do this and that, like, that's actually not that big of a, of a thing. You know, at the end of the day, if you had like beer pairing options on your menu at all time, I don't think people would really care too much, to be honest. Okay. Um, I think they'd rather just have really good food and really good beer, knowledgeable staff, proper glassware, um, same things you'd want, you know, in a in a tasting room. Sure. No, the, re- the reason I asked was I had uh, uh, Jeff Stuffings from Jester King on the show a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about, you know, how they have a new chef and uh, they ha- they're growing their kitchen there and that he's finding himself inspired by a lot of the stuff that the chef is bringing in uh, oh, and yeah. that his brain is now working in a different way as a brewer. So I, I, I you know, but he had started off as just a production brewery uh, without, yep. you know, the, the, the full on food element. So the, I, I was just sort of looking for the flip side of that if there if there was one of uh yeah and i mean i think yeah his beers are a lot more prone to having you know like spices and fruits and things like that added to them sure um than stuff i've made historically so that makes sense i mean for me like the new spot i'm at is a brew pub model um which not a lot of people are doing these days but we have a like a huge outdoor beer garden a really big indoor space and um you know, my, our chef is, is also the owner and he's very hardworking and passionate and the food program here is phenomenal. I'm really impressed with it and I love eating the food here. Um, and, uh, but you don't necessarily find it informing your, no, not, not specifically. Like I don't see him doing something in the kitchen, you know, where I'm like, Oh, I should incorporate that into the beer. Um, my thought here is more, you know, Pacifica is a smaller town they have one other brewery here that just opened up a few years ago. So they're kind of new to this whole craft beer thing. And, um, my, you know, my goals here to make beers that are really appropriate for the space and for the clientele and, um, and then kind of lure them into drinking, you know, like, like all of a sudden knowing the names of all their hops that go into an IPA and getting excited, you know, when they see like Nelson or Strata, you know, on the menu, and um, also, you know, the first 
flagship beer that I've designed here, and I, I hope it sticks. You know, we'll see if people love it or not. But it's like a Helles Lager, you know, inspired by just going to Munich, Germany, and drinking huge glasses of Helles because um, I think our space here is perfect for that, and and it's a great place to have that experience where you're drinking a big, a big frothy glass of pale lager. Um, you know, like outdoors while you snack on some food. Yeah, you're going to get no argument from me. And anybody who listens to the show knows that uh, uh, I could very much follow you down this rabbit hole of, of talking about uh, mugs of mugs of Hellas. So before uh, uh, my poor instincts take over, um, I want to <laughs> jump back to, to, to Social Kitchen and then uh, come back to Pacifica where you are now. Um, yeah. For fermenters at Social Kitchen... What were you making then, and what were you focusing on making, I guess, is, is, is the question. And then h- how, how did you have time or even the space for experimentation? Um, well, at Social, the, the brew house and the fermenters were kind of oversized for the business itself. So um, it was important to also focus on some distribution just to keep the tanks turning over. Uh, to keep the beer fresh and keep the yeast happy. And so um, I always had a Pilsner on, and that was generally occupying two of the 30-barrel the fermenters we had there. We had two 15 barrels as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so always Pilsner, um, which is why I'm making Hellas now, is because I've made enough Pilsner and everyone else is doing it, and uh, there's no consistently brewed Hellas in the Bay Area at, at this moment. Um so that was that was one of the styles, and I you know I love making lager. Just think it's really fun and very different than ale brewing. Um, so, uh, and then other than that, we had a flagship IPA uh, called the Smell. Um, <laughs> yeah, love loved that name, and um, and then uh, our English Pale Ale, Mister Kites, that I got a gold medal with at GABF a couple times. Um, that one always tried to have that around and, um, and then just kind of like a, a mishmash of other types of ales and things. And, um, also by the last year I was there because I was bored of having four fermenters, I actually built like, not built, but, um, I had five wine barrels that I would do primary fermentation in and maturation and stuff. in. so I was playing around with different styles of like barrel fermentation, uh, beers and I was doing anything from an English IPA to a porter. Um, and then as the barrels got a little older, I was like, you know, I should probably do some saison kind of things. And then, you know, by the end of the year, <clears throat> I was probably on my sixth beer or something going through those barrels. I, I ended up making like a, like a Brett beer of some sort. Um, so I was playing around with that. So like here and there, I could find little pockets to sneak in a, you know, like an experimental beer of some sort. So probably like once a month or so, I'd brew something I'd never brewed before. And the rest of the month, I was just trying to keep up with uh, the few brands that we had. So when you say brewing something that you hadn't brewed before, those were styles, though, that were already existing, right? They were, you know, like, oh, I haven't done a, you know, whatever, a triple for a while. I should try to do a triple, something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. So then how was the brewed IPA born? Because it, it it's... It seems like again, you, if you have this sort of limited space, you know, if if you're going to brew a quad or a triple or something that like you you hadn't spent a lot of time on experimenting with different ingredients and enzymes, like h- how did that jump happen? 
Um, well, I knew I'd use the enzyme in our triple IPA um, to get it as dry as possible. And I should say, I, I'm terrible with the pronunciation, but it's amylase. Uh... Oh, amyloglucosidase. Yeah. Is the Thank specific you. one I was using. Okay. Um, I think there's other enzymes you can use as well to achieve a very similar thing um, or even techniques. But um, yeah, I was I was dumping amyloglucosidase into the fermenter for a triple IPA, uh, which is a trick I got from CellarMaker. Um, they were using it, I think, also in their triple IPA at the time, or at least a batch of it. And um, they're using it in imperial stouts and things as well to get the ABV just way up there. Um, so, so, so yeah. for, for those who don't know how it works, can you like, what was the intent then and, and, and what did it do for those triple IPAs? It turns all of the starch in your mash and all the sugars in your mash into glucose, which is fully fermentable. So just, you know, normally when we're making beer and we're mixing all our grains up, we're making a multitude of fermentables and might even have some starches left over at the end. And this just turned all of it into fully fermentable sugar, um, if, if you did it correctly. And uh, another application, like what I was doing in the beginning of it, was actually just adding it to the fermenter, um, which proved to cause problems. Um, so I stopped doing it that way. But um, yeah, basically it just turns everything that could turn into glucose into glucose. And then your yeast eats all of it and you have a bone dry beer. Yeah. So you're doing that on triple IPAs, and and there are brewers that were using it for imperial stouts and 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 things like that. Um, but the brewed IPA isn't necessarily a triple IPA. No, and it it yeah, like one of the things is if the ABV creeps up, I think much above six and a half percent, you start getting sweetness from the flavor of the alcohol in the beer. So um, one of the the big issues in the beginning was I think brewers were making these beers and kind of not calculating that they were actually going to finish at zero degrees Play-Doh and end up with these 8% examples of it that didn't really taste any different than like a, just a crisp West coast IPA. So you went smaller. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first one I did was right around 7%. And then I quickly figured that out and started to really shoot to get them between six and six and a half percent to get them as perceivably dry as possible. In addition to dry. And so were you, were you setting out to try to bring a new style to the masses? Yeah. I mean, it was kind of just kind of a, let's see if we can do this and let's see if it works, you know, like why not? Um, I, I definitely wanted to like for it to be recognized as something different and a new approach to designing an IPA. Um, which is why, you know, the first batch I named it hop champagne and, you know, in our Instagram post called it out, I said, we're calling this beer an extra brute IPA. Here's what that means, you know, kind of explaining it so that when somebody read it, they're like, oh, this is, you know, something new. Um, right away, the local brewers, um, you know, started coming through really curious to try it, um, Seth from Magnolia, Phil was at Triple Voodoo at the time, and Tim from Cellar Maker, to name three. Yeah, um, they all rolled through like within a couple of weeks and tried it, and then we're like, "I'm gonna try and make this too." Like, do you mind? And you know, I just was excited, you know, that they would, and said, you know, like if we all call it the same thing, 
um, maybe maybe it'll get some attention and we'll have like a beer style that's you know native to San Francisco. So we did all that and it worked. But it evolved over time, right? So so you made reference to the first batch uh, where you were using it, uh, uh, using the enzyme in the fermenter, but then you stopped. Um, yep. what, what were the complications that you were having uh, with it in the uh, fermenter? Yeah, the, the main... The main thing was that I just thought it actually, the enzyme was like chewing away at actual like hop oil and flavor. Um, so I was like adding tons and tons of hops to these beers. And then by the time it went on tap, it would be kind of mellow um, in aromatics and flavor. And so I think that, and it, it also, the beers had this kind of distinct sort of stale quality to them. Um, reminded me of like a beer, like a glass of beer sitting out you know, on a table for an hour and then you get back to it and it, it just smells kind of like mushroomy or something. Yeah. Um, so I, I was fearful the enzyme was actually making the beers not taste as good. That was probably my primary concern. And then the secondary concern, and this was the issue for a lot of people that were using it in the fermenter was, um, the fermentation just never really stops. Like the enzyme is always finding something else, like a little bit of starch to turn into sugar. So your yeast stays active um, almost indefinitely. And a lot of people are having issues with diacetyl popping up, you know, well after the, even after the beer had been packaged, you know, it would go into a keg or something and um, the enzyme would still be active, perhaps even at a cold temperature. I'm not really sure yeah. if other people had, like if they stored it long enough for that to happen. Um, but a lot of the beers had a lot of issues with diacetyl, um, which mine, I, I, I got a little bit of it in, I think, maybe the third batch that I did, um, but it wasn't like an offensive amount. But a lot of them were like pretty offensively filled with butter <laughs> and not good. Uh, so, um, yeah, I started doing it on the in the mash. Yeah, I was going to say, so then you moved where you were applying it. Yeah. Yeah. And that way, you know, once you boil it, you denature the enzyme and you've kind of created this you know, this meal for the yeast that isn't going to change. It's like, it's, it's a set thing. Um, and I thought immediately the, the flavor and the aromas were much better and there was no fear of diacetyl anymore. So it was, um, in my opinion, a superior method. And, uh, um, at that point I was trying to, you know, when I was doing interviews with people, I was like, yeah, don't do it in the fermenter. I know I said that in the beginning, but like, it's a bad idea. Uh, and other brewers would argue with me and be like, nah, dude, fermenter's the way to go. Gets it all the way to zero. It's it's awesome. Um, beers, are, beers are great. And, you know, I'd drink them and be like, I don't know, man. I get a little butter in there. And they're like, nah, dude, it's great. So, <laughs> so I kind of created my own beast. <laughs> so so that's a, that's a really great segue, right? Because there are established styles of beers that exist. You know, like we we, we – sort of understand what a West coast IPA is. We now sort of understand what a, a new England style is. Um, you know, we can tell the difference, uh, you know, between a dry Irish stout and an export stout or, you know, what, it, it, there's, there's all of these established things, your beer, it seemed, and your style that you wanted to be native to San Francisco, you, you were still sort of tweaking it like on the fly. Um, and then other people were sort of tweaking it as well. Um, did it ever get a chance to sort of cement itself with style guidelines? Um, I mean, in my head, yes. 
and I think overall for the whole community, um, I mean, eventually uh, the Brewers Association, you know, it was in their GABF, you know, entry um, information about, actually, I don't, it, it was part of a category called Emerging IPA. Yeah. Um, which was developed, I think, partly because of the brute and other IPAs that just didn't fit into categories were just accumulating. Right. Um, but in doing that, I forget if they actually. I don't think I don't think they defined it in their little. No, you know, and you, and, you and that's the thing. Stuff. Like it, it's one of those. If you've ever read uh, beer judging guidelines, it's you know ABV can be zero to a hundred and SRM zero. Yeah, it's it's sort of one of these catch all categories kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I feel like when I've read things about what it can be, the ABV is it's like allowable to have it up to like nine percent, and that's something I'm like, no, no, no. Like it can't. Like that's a hard no. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, for me, right off the bat, I was like, you know, the things that defy it are it's really dry and the ABV can't be above seven and a half, but it should really be below seven and it needs to be as pale as possible. Like you don't want and it clear. to be orange. No, it doesn't have to be clear. Okay. That was, uh, that was another thing where I, I don't care. Um, and I, almost all the ones I put out were, you know, at least part, partly hazy, you know, had like a haze to them. Um, but some of the ones I put out were just hazy. Like I didn't want to even put findings in them. I wanted all the hop character I could get. Okay. Um, all right. So ABV in that six, 7% range, uh, pale, dry. What else defines a brute IPA? Uh, I mean, those, those are the main things. I mean, other than that, it's like the hop profile, like the intensity, the aroma, the flavor should all be, you know, what you would associate with an IPA. And is, and is um, it dealer's choice? As well, far like as what that profile would be like? Yeah. 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 If you want to go really piney, that's all good. Um, it makes more sense, in my opinion, to go big tropical fruit bomb and, and try and make it taste like a Sauvignon Blanc or something. Um, but that's dealer's choice for sure. So you've put this out there as to what you, you know, hope it would be and, 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 and what people would follow. Um, we've seen, you know, fruited versions. We've seen barrel aged versions. We've basically seen, you know, uh, uh, Brian Yeager years ago used to, used to call these, uh, the India silly ales, uh, where, uh-huh. you know, people would sort of just, you know, screw around with them. Um, but in, in so many cases it was, messing around with styles that had been around forever so that people had a baseline of understanding. Okay. Like I understand how you got to this point uh, with this, you know, uh, fruited whatever, or, you know, this sort of, you know, crazy whatever version of the style. And I understand that just simply because, um, you know, I've had a traditional West coast IPA. I've had a Sierra Nevada pale ale, so I can understand, you know, where it came from to, to get to where we are today. Did did your style ever have a chance? Do you think, as it grew as fast as it did, to put your idea forward into the minds of the drinkers? Um, I don't think it did. <laughs> I think kind of the larger examples that did like come to the surface, you know, over time were um, generally they weren't. There was something like lacking about almost all of them. Um, so I think by the time anybody could really you know, dial it in and make a really good one and mass that like a lot of people had access to and were talking about. Um, 
there was enough bad ones out there that people had already decided that the style was dumb. They didn't want to make them anymore. Uh, and the consumers weren't that interested in them. So yeah. it, it, it kind of died, I think, for those reasons. Has there been a resurgence? Or, or uh, let, me, let me rephrase that. Um, what do you see or where do you see Brewed IPA today in the American drinking landscape? I think at the moment, I mean, basically nobody makes them. Um, and there's, there's memes out there, you know, being like, oh, thank God this thing's dead. <laughs> What is that? Uh, what does that do to your psyche? Oh, I think I think it's funny. Um, I don't take it personally. I'm mean, I'm not the one who brewed all the ones that nobody liked, and the ones <laughs> I made. I think people people tended to like the ones I made. Um, and it was funny, you know, like at Social Kitchen, we're in our own little bubble. It's not like a bunch of beer geeks are going there. Uh, we're just like a neighborhood pub, and you know, our own clientele was they didn't even know what it was. And then if you went to a, so it was kind of you know hard to sell for that reason. And then if you go to a like a like a hype tasting room place people there didn't want to make them they didn't want to drink them they'd still rather have you know 10 hazies on tap with like no variation and that's you know it was it didn't really have it never really found a place you know for to where it made sense i guess to to sell yeah um i'm 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 scrolling through as we're talking right now the pacifica brewery uh dot beer website uh and looking at all of the various beers that you have where i'm seeing some ipas some hazy ipas and irish stout tangerine goes uh i'm not seeing a brewed ipa are are you not making one right now no <laughs> uh i you know i've been here about three months and my my number one goal right now is to make things that sell fast and that um, I think are like what a, a, a market like Pacifica wants, which I believe is going to be lots of IPA and, um, and a really good pale lager for the people that want like some easy, easy drinking things. So of all the beers on that menu, um, which may or may not be updated, um, you know, if there's a Hellas on there, that's the beer I brewed, the Pilsners from the last guy, and then I've released three IPAs so far. Is that it? Yeah. And um, and that's that's been my beer program thus far. Today I'm transferring a Hefeweizen into a tank. And um, next week it's going to be more IPA, more Hellas, um, like a cream ale type beer with lemon zest in it that we're going to nitrogenate. Okay. Um, so I'm just trying to keep everything really friendly. I want to keep the IPA game here, you know, West Coast and hazy, basically, because um, I, I want them to move, you know, fast. I don't want to be stuck with a beer that's going to be on like a hoppy beer like that that might, you know, take six to eight weeks to sell. I need everything to sell within three to four. Yeah. Um, so all that being said, you know, at some point in time, I'm sure I'll brew one again. Um, and when I was at Woods uh, in the last year, um, we did a couple. And that's where you went after there. you left Social Kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. I took some time off after Social and just traveled the country and the world for about two and a half months and then landed at Woods Beer and Wine Company. And um, yeah, we made a really good one over there, actually. It turned out awesome. And we got to put it in cans. And uh, first time I ever had it in like a proper package. Um, and it, it sold it sold pretty well for a brute. It sold not as fast as our hazy, but um, what but does selling people, pretty people well like for it. a brute mean? <laughs> Probably uh, <laughs> a little slower than a pale ale. 
<laughs> okay, I mean not, these, not these, are, these are these are like speed metrics EPA. that I'm not like fully familiar with, but yeah. Yeah, uh, maybe as fast as a pale ale. I would say that. Okay. So you know, not as fast as an IPA, not nearly as fast as a hazy IPA, but faster than a stout, faster than a porter. Um, yeah, something like that. In two of your previous brewing jobs, you, you, you mentioned, you know, sort of, you didn't use the word plateau, but you, you, you reached a certain point in your career where you wanted to go and find a new challenge. And yep. I, I find that so interesting because you know, so many folks, you know, if they can get a good thing going, if they have a system that's easy to use, that they're familiar with, um, they might just put down roots and, you know, call it a career. And there's people who have had you know, a certain amount of success with it. Um, does the, does the changing of venues keep you sharp as a brewer? I mean, it's obviously something that that's personal for you that you want to be doing, but how does that translate into you know, what you think you're putting forward in, in, in the beers that you're making? Um, yeah, I guess the, the, the changing of venues is always really challenging um, cause you get to a new space and the equipment's totally different. And, um, you know, like at Woods, it was, it's a beer and wine company. Uh, my job felt much more like a production job than it I'd ever had before. And it was, um, awesome because it was like a team environment. We had, you know, very organized like meetings every Tuesday with, uh, the various, uh, taproom managers cause we had multiple locations and the owner and, um, you know, we had a guy who did all the bookkeeping um, and it was it was this really cool team environment thing. But it was really hard for me to adapt to that because I'd been you know, so used to just doing whatever and not really having to communicate as much with other people um, about what was going on. And there it was almost like a full time job to just like communicate and kind of direct this whole thing. So I was much less hands on than I was at social in terms of like actually, you know, work production and making sure, you know, the seller work was done every day. Um, it was harder to like check on the beers and do those types of things. Um, and also like, you know, the, every time I go somewhere, there's something about the way the equipment's designed that I want to improve, um, redoing all like the standard operating procedures, you know, like where do the tools go? Where else do we need this? Just reorganizing like a whole space to, to make it easier to work in, um, seems to be something that, uh, it takes, you know, a few months anywhere I start a new so yeah um even at pacifica brewery this is a it's a brand new brewery first yeah, time not, i've ever had a, that it's luxury. only a couple months old right yeah so it was installed in 2019 and all the equipment you know i think i just brewed batch 31 so there's only been 31 batches brewed here and um the dilemma here is is getting the equipment dialed in rather than like trying to fix broken equipment yeah. which has always been my dilemma before because <laughs> uh like social system was built in 96 uh woods had a system that was built in 97 but it was owned by a bunch of other breweries so it was it had some um some pieces of it that needed some love and marin brewing companies was built in like 1990 or no 1989 yeah so this is i mean by far the newest uh brewery i've worked on and um it's cool. It's like, I know I'm going to make the best beer I've ever made at this spot. Cause this is by far the nicest equipment I've been able to work on. 
But you um, also have the worry now of everything that's raging around outside, right? <clears throat> because you're not probably having as many people come through the tap room or the or the brewery as you would hope to to put your beer in front of them uh, because of because of COVID. Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's very unique challenges at this moment, um, and uh, what what do you think you is know. the what do you think is the the biggest one you're facing right now? just uncertainty of, I mean, it would be, you want to plan ahead, you know, as far as possible, even a small place like ours that, you know, like I have a, I don't need to know what I'm brewing a month from now, but to know if a month from now I needed to have, you know, half of our beer in cans because our tap room is going to close again, that would be good information to have. And, you know, we're not going to have that information um really ever i don't think until it's right on top of you yeah like what's going on you know a month ahead and in these times and so that's definitely the biggest challenge is is almost like the format of how the beer is going to get consumed by somebody and um trying to design things to be as flexible as possible without you know with not a lot of information um and we're just super fortunate we have a huge and very uh, comfortable and attractive outdoor space, um, which I think is going to allow us to keep operating, you know, through these times. I don't see the California government shutting down outdoor, you know, restaurant uh, seating again. And, and who knows, it could happen. But sure. um, the indoor seating, for sure. I don't I don't even I don't know if that's going to come back until there's a vaccine. Um, so, yeah, it's just kind of getting creative, I guess, and, uh, doing things that maybe you normally wouldn't have done. I mean, this, this space was designed to have a brewery that's the perfect size to serve our, our, you know, our seated area and, um, and nothing else. Um, but you know, since getting here we're it makes tons of sense to get our mobile canning company, uh, to come through and can up a bunch of our beer yeah. and give it to, uh, our distributor and have them, you know, we had to get a distributor <laughs> and uh, have them sell the cans and, and even a couple kegs for some of the other businesses that are around. Yeah. And fortunately, we, we don't, you know, we're still a small space. It's a 10 barrel system. We have like 70 barrels of fermentation capacity. Like I'm not trying to, you know, move like tons and tons of beer, but, um, but, you know, it's just me and the owner pretty much figuring it all out and working with our distributor to, to just try and predict where things are going to go and how much we should be making and what we need a month from now as best we can. I know everybody is focused on the immediate and then obviously worried about the, the, the long term right now. Um, where does innovation or what, what, what should brewers be thinking about when it comes to innovation and what should drinkers be asking for? when it comes to innovation in their beer? Cause it, it does seem that, you know, you created something, you know, or put something out onto the market uh, and everybody sort of followed through and then it, it, it kind of disappeared, but we haven't necessarily seen anything else like that since. And you know, two years is a long time. Yeah. I mean, it, I know, is like there the... enough innovation happening in the industry? I guess is the, is the more dialed in question. Yeah, I think there is. I think people are still 
innovating. I mean, innovating now means like adding a ridiculous amount of fruit, fruit puree, you know, to like a sour beer that's 8% ABV, um, which people are getting more aggressive with, I guess. Yeah. Is that uh, innovation though? That's a good question. You know, I think it's arguable. Um, I, you know, I can't even say that I've had any of those beers, so I can't really judge them, but it just kind of seems a bit silly to me um, that those are popular and that kind of the consumers continue to like the market that continues to expand and, and get the most attention. is this kind of beer that doesn't taste like beer market um, that, you know, it can, it can be fun here and there, but it's, just, it's certainly not what I would want to dedicate my career to. Yeah. Um, but what I think, you know, as it relates to COVID and kind of the situations we're in, um, I think innovation comes from thinking about what type of scenarios people are going to be drinking beer in and what kind of beer they're going to want in those scenarios. Um, and for example, like when California first went into shelter in place mode and, um, you know, for a period of that, I was just cooped up at my girlfriend's apartment for a few weeks and I did not want to drink hazy beer because it was too filling. And I just, all I wanted was really good, crisp, you know, six and a half percent IPA. Um, Cause I love my hops. Um, and I think that, yeah, maybe like the drinkability factor for certain situations is going to be like uh, something that will uh, evolve in this time. Um, there's probably other people that actually, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the heavy, the heavy and filling beers like hazies and smoothie sours, I would think would lose a little momentum in these times. If people are spending more time at home and kind of docile, I would think they want something crisper and lighter and a little more refreshing just so they could drink four of them instead of two. Yeah. <sighs> Will the brood IPA ever make a comeback? Uh, I don't think so, but only time will tell. Um, I saw one, um, I was up in Oregon about a week and a half ago and, um, there's a brewery from Olympia called three mags and I think they're pretty hip. Um, and they had a, their, I think the name of the beer was, is this still a thing? You know, <laughs> question mark. <laughs> It, that very easily also could have been Cascadian Dark, just based on the name. Totally. Uh, but it was a Brute IPA. <laughs> I saw it at the grocery store, and I bought it. And, um, and the label was hilarious. It had, like, a fidget spinner on it and some other, you know, some other things that are, like, outdated now, you know, that kind of came and went. And, and even a picture of Joe Biden, which I was not really sure what the statement is on that, but I think it's funny. And uh, I'm sorry, what's yeah. the name of the brewery again? Three Mags. Three Mags. Like the number three and then M-A-G-S. Okay. Um, but it was a super funny label and just kind of totally having fun with, um, you know, making the Brood IPA. In a, the label and the, I would say, like the tone and the humor of it was very much like a hazy, you know, but it was a Brood IPA. And um, How did it taste? I, I, thought it was, I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, and it was good. I, I I got a couple and I drank them and they were super solid and very, very in line with what I think the style is. 
It, it almost strikes me that you need to have some sort of like cask mark or camera seal or even like an upside down bottle or something of the ones that meet your approval. That might be the only way uh, to get the, the, the style established at this point. Maybe like a, you know, a picture of you with a thumbs up or something that people can put on their yeah. hands um, so that people know that it's a, an actual you know, solid brute IPA. Yeah, I mean, if people want that certification, they can just send me a, a can, and I'll I'll uh, send them a I'll, I'll come up with something they can put on their label. You heard it here first. Hey, uh, before we go, and I'm going to give you a minute to think about it, but I'm going to ask you uh, whose beers you've been drinking lately uh, that you're that you're really digging, aside from Three Mags. And while you think about that, I'm going to remind folks that this show is produced by Beer Edge. So check out BeerEdge.com and subscribe to the newsletter, and also download. Uh, the Beer Edge podcast hosted by Andy Crouch with new episodes every week. And also check out Steal This Beer and the BYO Nano podcast. And don't forget to go on to Apple Podcasts or wherever you download podcasts and leave a review of this show. If you have questions, suggestions, or guests you'd like to hear, you can email me at John Hall, it's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or reach out on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Mitch Weber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed the logo. And Kim Sturdivant of Pacifica Brewing. Yep. Who are you digging these days? Uh, Altamont Beer Works out of, uh, where I, I think, Livermore or something like that. It's in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay. Um, they've always crushed it at making very dry, clear, West Coast-style IPAs. Um, so I've been drinking a ton of theirs. Uh, it gets to the, the bottle shop down the street from me. Um, Wayfinder from Portland, Oregon. Oh, yeah. If I can find their stuff anywhere. Um, Kevin's making some of my favorite lagers, as well as uh, Lisa from Heater Allen Brewing Company. Um, Heater Allen Pills is my favorite pills. Oh, sure. And and it does get down here. So I, I gobble that one up pretty often. Um, and then, like California, there's a lot of breweries that are shipping statewide right now. So I got a case of some um, Highland Park good green ipa about a little, little over a month ago that was awesome Dig what so bob's doing yeah we just had bob on steal this beer a couple weeks ago oh awesome yeah so i was snacking on that it was like a really solid just crisp west coast style um faction in the east bay is uh, i mean roger over there has been making phenomenal beer since before i got into the industry oh, yeah. and he's still at it so um i made made a little mecca over there a couple weeks ago to get a couple cases of his beers did not regret it um, and Hen House locally, um, they are just uh, fresh fanatics and they do not hesitate to pull their beer off the shelf after it's, I think if it's a month old, they take all their cans back and um, swap it out with the retailer. And so that's, and they're big enough now and they have their own canning line that you can get their IPA uh, for like $13.99 or so. it's just a great deal and you always know that beer is going to be screaming fresh so um big big supporter of those guys as well that's uh you're making me really want a west coast ipa so i'm gonna i'm gonna end it here so i can go downstairs to the beer fridge and uh there you see go. what i have nothing as fresh as what uh as, as what you were just describing and uh, uh i might actually have some old brutes sitting in the in the way back of the fridge so maybe i'll maybe old I'll, brutes I'll, yeah <laughs> there's only old is that is now. that a style could that be a style no, <laughs> it's like saying aged IPA is a style. And it's American barley wine. Um, yeah, it'd be like a barley wine hard seltzer, you know. Uh, 
Fantastic. That's what a brew, an aged brew would be. Uh, Kim Sternovit, thanks for taking the time. And PacificaBrewery.beer is the website for the new place that you're at. And uh, anybody who's out in the area or traveling, you should go and, and, and check them out. Um, thanks again for, yeah. for taking the time and walking down memory lane with me. It was fun. I haven't I haven't interviewed done an interview regarding Brute in well over a year. So Well, we're anything take, but topical on this show. Take takes me back to mid twenty eighteen. Yeah. It's nice. <laughs> Thanks again. Yeah, cool man. Cheers. Cheers.